if you're a visitor this morning? <laughs> Anybody admitting to being a visitor this morning? <laughs> well, welcome to the madhouse. <clears throat> Should have come last night. <laughs> we had the sedate crowd in last night. Right, so today we're carrying on in our study of Hebrews and we've got to chapter 12, which you've all read during the week. And it's a cracking chapter, it's full of stuff and it's so full that I won't be covering all of it because we haven't got the time to do justice. Um, Last week, Paul looked at the previous chapter, chapter 11, which included a listing of the heroes of faith. And some of the names in there were familiar to us, like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and other names were anonymous. They didn't say who they were, but they were all known to God. But the thing which struck me was, wasn't it great to hear how their faith had given them all health, prosperity, long comfortable lives, enjoying the honor and favor of their local communities? Did you pick that up? (laughs) Yeah, right. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 35 onwards, it says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. That sounds good. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Mm. And then it leads into chapter 12, and it starts with therefore. And the therefore is a linking word because it links what's just gone before with what's to come. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So who's included in this great cloud of witnesses? Well, those who were listed in chapter 11 and others like them. They were all different. They all had their faith journey. But what they had in common was that their belief, their faith, their trust in God manifested through their lifestyle. For them, faith wasn't merely some kind of intellectual affirmation, you know, a 
a creed believed or a text memorized. Their faith molded their very life journey, regardless of the opposition and the hostility that they met. We're going to return into the cloud later on, but I just want to go on a little bit in the, in the chapter. See, the writer of Hebrews then echoes the reality of most of our lives when in verse 4 he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which I think is true for most of us, isn't it? There are tens of thousands of believers across the world right now who are suffering and losing their faith because of their, losing their life because of their Christian faith. No other reason. Here in the UK, we don't face anything like that persecution or opposition. You could say we're fortunate and we're definitely too comfortable. The writer then quotes from Proverbs 3. He says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And he builds on this and parallels it with family experience and says, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. I must confess, I wasn't quite sure about that bit. Because sadly, it's not true. And in many cases, it's the root of many people's problems. I mean, to say that Father God disciplines you like an earthly father is enough to fill many people with dread based on their father's experience. Many have grown up with a less than positive experience of parental discipline within the home. And an increasing number have had no father influence at all. And therefore, what happens is that our life, our experience, invariably colours our understanding. You talk about Father God and you relate that to your understanding of a father. And if your experience of a father has not been positive, sometimes you struggle with your understanding of Father God, a God who loves you and you, you are a bit reluctant to engage with a father in heaven when your father on earth has been not that good. Language and words mean a lot to us, and they can challenge us in this chapter. Words like discipline, words like rebuke, words like chastens. Most of them have a negative connotation. So therefore, the bottom line is knowing how God views sin and feels about sin and failure is vital. So we're going to cut to the $64,000 question and ask... Not that, <laughs> but that. How does God respond when we sin? And I'm talking believers here, since I would say the vast majority of you hopefully are. How does God respond when we sin? When we choose to sin, and let's face it, the majority of our sins are the result of a conscious choice that we make. Let's not kid ourselves. How does God react? Some Christians think that he looks away, that he can't look at us, that if we sin, that God cannot look upon sin, cannot look upon something that's impure, because it says in Habakkuk 1 verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
Is that what you think? Well, if that's the case, some of us are giving God a sore neck because he's constantly turning away, turning back, turning away, turning back. But not only is that old covenant thinking, that was merely the opinion of the prophet. It was not a truth about God's character. Which should ring a little bell and say, we need to be careful how we read the Bible. We need to be careful what we read and how we, what we take from the Bible and what we build our life and understanding on. Some would also say, this one's a bit more controversial, just thought I'd wind you up a bit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. What's, what's wrong with that? Some people are thinking. But what does that mean? What does the word mean? Well, it means that because of your sin, the Holy Spirit declares you, a believer, guilty. That's what to convict means. It means to pronounce guilt. Right? But this doesn't seem to square up with what was said in Hebrews 10 verse 17 a few chapters ago when it says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So how can God declare you guilty of sins that he chooses not to remember. There is some confusion here about the word conviction or convict and Holy Spirit conviction is really nothing to do with our guilt or our sins and it's all to do with God's grace. The original word in scripture means to turn on the lights. That's what it means. To turn on the lights not to shame you, but to show you a new path and to convince you that Jesus is faithful and true. That's the original word. It's nothing to do with guilt at all. And the Holy Spirit is not some sort of sin monitor. <laughs> I, find, I find that Christians are, are obsessed with sin, either doing it or trying to avoid it. <laughs> and yet from God's perspective, I don't want to belittle sin, but from God's perspective, sin is a done deal. It's sorted. It's sorted. And the Holy Spirit is more concerned about promoting us in our righteousness rather than saying, now stop doing that and stop doing that and stop. He just does not do that. He is your helper, your comforter, your counselor to guide you, to correct you, and if necessary, to admonish you, which means reprimand. But not specifically in response to your sin, but because he loves you. He is the most gentle, kind, wise, perfect, loving spirit, and he guides us into all truth. God loves you for who you are, not for what you can do or how well you do. All right? We're going to pause there because you, some people need to receive that into their spirit. That. Some people need to really receive that in their spirit that God loves you for who you are, not for what you can do or how well you do. Right? Graham Cook says, In the love of God, we cannot fail. We can only make mistakes. 
and mistakes have already been covered by the cross. So, like a holy sat nav, God's desire is to bring about a course correction in your life when it's required. And if you want to try something out, and I recommend this on your next journey, next time you're driving down south, say Leeds, London even, before you set off, set your sat-nav for Inverness. <laughs> and then go on the journey. And I can guarantee you, it will persistently <laughs> attempt to correct you and change your direction. All the time. All the time. And it won't give up. It won't say by the time you get to Leeds, oh, well, stuff you then if you're going to go this way. <laughs> Unless, of course, you've got the John Cleese version of the sat-nav. <laughs> in which he probably will say that. And worse. No, he will continue. It will continue to try and correct you. And that's how the Holy Spirit is. Patient and persistent always bringing you back to where you should be in God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now in the New Covenant, <clears throat> the word for correction means a straightening up again like a realigning, a straightening up again. And I like that it says again, because this isn't a one-off warning with a finger wagging saying you need to straighten up or else. This is you need to straighten up again. It's patient persistence. Scripture revealed to us how the Galatian church veered off course. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, they all started in the spirit and then they tried to progress things in their own strength and went back under the law. It's a bit of a common Christian flaw, that, isn't it? Saved by grace, sanctified by works. That's how it works, sometimes works out, and that's where the trouble starts. But the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, brought about a course correction. So let's see four things that the Holy Spirit doesn't do when we sin, okay? When we sin, the Holy Spirit does not chastise us with illness to teach us a lesson and bring us back into line. Regardless of what your illness is, it's nothing at all to do with God, right? Didn't come from God, didn't start there at all, right? And yet some people have this distorted view that perhaps this illness is something to do with God. You know, as though God says a quick dose of flu will sort her out. <laughs> He'd never say it about a man because he would never inflict man flu on a man. <laughs> you know. Lay her flat so that she's facing up. That's what she needs, a bit of upward looking. The nonsense that we sometimes think. So the Holy Spirit does not do that when we sin. What else? The Holy Spirit does not accuse us of wrongdoing. Because someone else is much more, who will remain nameless, is much more proficient and well-practiced at accusing us. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't pour guilt over us. Sadly, with our old covenant mindset, we are expert at doing that to ourselves, aren't we? Pouring guilt all over us when something goes wrong. And the Holy Spirit does not condemn us as a sinner, as a wicked person. Instead, Scripture says God trains us like a father. He doesn't chastise us with punishment or sickness. And he trains us primarily through Scripture. We've just seen 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. But also, he trains us as the Holy Spirit speaks revelation into our heart and spirit. John 3, John 16, verse 13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. Our problem is that we confuse our behavior with our identity. So when we screw up, we think, I've done it again. I am a screw up. When we sin, we think, I'm a sinner. I just keep failing. I just keep not measuring up. And the Holy Spirit says, that is not true. Your righteous behavior never made you righteous in the first place. Your unrighteous behavior doesn't make you unrighteous. Even though you screwed up and sinned, you are still in Christ and righteous. I'm pausing there because some people are going to struggle with that statement. So I want you to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> now, some people are going to struggle with that because if you have a performance-based view of your relationship with God, you will struggle with that. When we live from the false identity of who we used to be, the Holy Spirit will always seek to remind us of our true identity in Christ. He will always do that. He will say to us, you are holy you are righteous, so live like it. Instead of wagging his finger and pointing out sin and failing, he will call us on in our righteousness rather than being nitpicky. That's what he will do. John Crowder says, Are you tired of performance-based emotional roller coaster spirituality? Thinking God is happy with you one day and upset with you the next? Trust in his finished work, not your own efforts. Rest in the knowledge that you are permanently plugged into heaven. Whether you know it or not, feel it or not, he is continually smiling at you. So let's return to the cloud of witnesses. They've been very patient. Now, in our digital age, we are used to cloud storage, aren't we? (laughs) So what about this heavenly cloud? Well, the Mirror Bible says, so now the stage is set for us. All these faith heroes cheer us on like a great multitude of spectators in the amphitheater. We are encompassed, we are encircled by such a great cloud of witnesses. These great history makers stand in the cloud of witnesses watching with both excitement and wonder 
as the mystery of Christ unfolds before their eyes. And do you know why they are so excited? They are excited because believers like you and me are receiving the revelation that we can co-labor with heaven. I will say that again. They are excited because believers like you and me are receiving the revelation that we can co-labor with heaven. <laughs> Ephesians 3 talks about the whole family in heaven and earth. It's talking about the church militant and the church triumphant, the same one church. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We don't see unseen with our natural eyes. But there are unseen things going on all around us at any given moment. Right now, right here, the unseen is happening. The Bible reveals all kinds of beings in the spirit realm. Angels, archangels, living creatures, saints, demons, Men in white linen. Now, that is not a Procol Harum song. Or a sequel to Men in Black. Men in white linen. Have you come across men in white linen in your Bible? And members of the clouds of witnesses. But with all this going on, it is so easy for Christians to become earthbound as believers. Because religion robs us of heaven on earth and says, heaven's where you go when you die. Right? Now, it says in Thessalonians that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. Right? We all agree on that, don't we? Good. But do you see yourself as a body with a soul and a spirit? Or do you see yourself as a spirit in a body with a soul? This is not wordplay. How do you see yourself? Because the reality is we are spirit beings. We are supernatural beings. We are born from above. We are seated in heavenly realms. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and we are continually watched over by and ministered to by angels. That is the reality. Every time we pray, we make ripples in the spirit realm. We can move heaven and earth through the authority of Christ by speaking and declaring his word. This is the reality of who we are in Christ. 
We need to get hold of it. We need to understand it. We need to receive a revelation about it. When you look, when you look at the life of Jesus, have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered? <laughs> Perhaps that's the problem. When you look at the life of Jesus, have you ever wondered why he didn't perform any miracles before the age of 30? Have you ever wondered that? Has it ever crossed your little gray cells? The answer is simple, he couldn't. Right? He could not perform any miracles before the age of 30. If you want to argue with me, then go and look up the hypostatic union and get caught in that. Because the Holy Spirit didn't come upon him until his baptism, right? And Jesus performed all his miracles as a spirit-filled man, not as God. Which has, implica which has implications for all of us as spirit-filled men and women, doesn't it? At Jesus' baptism, Mark 1 verse 10, it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that passage before. I'd read it, but I hadn't noticed that it said heaven was torn open. Not neatly unzipped and zipped back up again. It was torn open. There was a finality about it. In fact, the word actually for torn is a violent word. Years later when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Same word. The Holy of Holies was open for all. Total, unrestricted, open access to God's presence. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah had prayed... Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He did. It's just what he did. Then after the ascension, during a time when the young church was gathering together, they experienced an outpouring, a corporate manifestation of the blessings of an open heaven. We call it Pentecost. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So our human spirit is radiating the power of the Holy Spirit through us. We live today under an open heaven, partnering with the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the reality of heaven on earth. John Crowder again. If you want to manifest the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it is vital that you believe He is fully inside of you. Manifestation is effortless. A revelation of truth is what is needed. That's what we need. A revelation of truth. You just cannot think yourself into this. We need to receive it in our spirit. God needs to speak this truth into our spirit. Our inheritance and citizenship are from above. But the problem is in how we think. The problem is between your ears. Many see death as the doorway to heaven, whereas it's not. 
Jesus is the doorway. The big change in your life was when you were spiritually reborn. Death is just a change of clothes. The gospel is not so much a salvation package as a translocation package. Because through it, we are now seated in the heavenlies. We are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And the Greek word there, kainos, means something brand new. Something new in quality. Something that's never been before. Something that's made for another world. If we think we understand God, we limit him to the size of our intellect. We are dealing here with mystery. We need increasing revelation and experience. In Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3, it says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Jesus was having a supernatural encounter with members of the cloud of witnesses. His face shone like the morning sun. He was transfigured. The light wasn't shining on him the light was actually coming from him. It was coming through him. The light was so bright. This was actually a glimpse of the tear. The light was coming through. During the past 10 years, there's been a growing awareness within the wider church of living under an open heaven. It is an essential aspect of our inheritance in Christ. I know there are people here in the bay who regularly visit heaven. Does that sound strange? Does that sound odd? Are you wondering whether he's lost it? People here in the bay, people in this room right now, but I'm not going to point them out, regularly, regularly visit heaven. If that does sound strange to you, know what it shows. It shows that there is much more of us to experience in Christ. Much, much more. Right, let's stand together. I want us to pray. I'm going, to mention, I'm going to read out a prayer bit by bit, and I want you to repeat it. Now, if you're a bit nervous about that because you're new and you don't know what you're letting yourself in for, then just mumble, and the people next door to you won't know. So put your hand on your heart and repeat after me. Father God, I need communication from heaven in my life. I ask that you would open, I ask that you would open the, unseen realm to me. the unseen realm to me. 
Please remove all fear from my heart. Fear of the unseen and fear of supernatural encounters. I desire to receive all of the spiritual blessings that you have provided for me. And I make myself available to your many forms of communication. In the precious name of Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.